Almighty God, we ask that you would use these words that are coming from us to remind us that you alone are God, that you alone are holy, true, faithful, that you're present that you being who you are is not subject to life that changes that turns that twists in any way that doesn't make you always who you are Remind us today that as the world changes, you continue to be a God who is more than enough. That you never fail at being who you are. There is none like you. There may be somebody here this morning who needs you in a very particular way. You're the only one who can meet a hundred different needs in one song, in one verse, in one space of quiet, in one sermon in the same greeting. So be for us, the people of God, who you have always been, a God who meets needs, who is rich in mercy, who is boundless in grace, who comes to sit next to us and translates what's said to what we need to hear. We ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. All God's people said amen. Last week, we celebrated uh, the baptisms of Chigo and Evan. And next week, Pastor Peter is beginning a sermon series on the Holy Spirit. I think it's next week. And so uh, today, I want to uh, talk uh, in between those two from last week. Uh, to what comes next, and to think together about what happens after baptism. There are a lot of things that happen to the baptized, a lot of things that happen to the follower of Jesus, and I'm going to talk about two of them this morning. The first thing I'm going to talk about is a kind of immediate consequence of being baptized. 
And the second thing I'm going to talk about is one of the lifelong implications of being baptized. And so there more, there's more to be said. There's more to sort of pay attention to when it comes to what it means for us to follow Jesus and to be baptized. There's a lot that comes with, as Pastor Peter said last week, identifying with the person of Christ, identifying with the work of Christ, and identifying with the community of Christ. I'm going to pull out two of them this morning. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 3 and Acts chapter 2. There probably isn't anything on the screens because I didn't send our PowerPoint folks anything. So don't be alarmed at that. Uh, I'm going to read these two passages. In fact, I'm going to ask for two people to read them. So anybody here have a preacher voice uh, and you're comfortable reading? I'm going to ask two people to do that. I will pick you out because I know how you sound. So if you don't volunteer, uh, I'll call on you. So I want two people, two people, two people, two people. All right, stand up. Is that John? Uh, Stand. And uh, can you find Matthew chapter 3? And you'll go from verses 13 to Matthew 4 and 1. And then I need one more volunteer with a preacher's voice, or you want to have a preacher's voice. And uh, You stand up, stand up. Come on, come on. All right, Lynn, thank you. Lynn, can you find Acts 2, and you'll read verses 41 and 42. Okay, so the first passage in Matthew 3, verses 13 to chapter 4, verse 1. And then after that, Lynn, uh, Acts 2, verses 41 and 42. Hear the word of God. Thank you. Will you applaud these brothers for reading the scripture this morning for us? Thank you. The first passage in Matthew has God present in every possible way. And one of the beautiful things about uh, Jesus' baptism is that we see the presence of God the Father, we see the presence of the Son, and we see the presence of the Holy Spirit. Hear those words here um, uh, being read as, as I talk to you. See those words in front of you if your Bible is open. And, and, and remember um, that, that John is baptizing. Jesus uh, comes to John and asks John to baptize him. This critical moment in Jesus' life. 
This transformative moment in the life of Jesus uh, is, is his baptism. And John baptizes him. And after he comes up out of the water, God the Father speaks. The Holy Spirit is present in a metaphorical way like a dove. And the Son, Jesus, is standing in water. And God says that this is my Son whom I love. I am well pleased. And, 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 and the scene, until you get to the next verse, is pretty beautiful. It's splendid. Here you have God the Father speaking words of, of affirmation about the Son and to the Son. Here you have the Holy Spirit being present in a very gentle way talked about like a dove. And the same Spirit who is gentle guides Jesus into the wild. The same God who is present at this critical time, this, this time of, of, of celebration and righteousness and fulfillment of all things. The same God who, who causes God's person to come together in ravishing and beautiful ways leads Jesus into the desert, into the wild, into the wilderness. So God is present at this wonderful time and then God sends Jesus into a wild time. I think this is an immediate consequence of Jesus' baptism. And I think we should pay attention to Jesus' baptism and to what happens after his baptism for our sake this morning. Jesus is, is guided, he is led, he is lured, he is pulled into a place where he will be tempted. And who does the guiding? Who does the leading? Who does the luring? Who does the appealing? The Holy Spirit. God the Spirit leads Jesus. From baptism into temptation. Everybody say the word temptation. Now there are, there are two uh, biblical definitions for temptation. There, there is one definition that comes out of this text. And then there is another definition that comes out of a passage in James. And so when we hear the spirit guiding Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Uh, the kind of temptation that Jesus is being guided by God into is this first definition. And, and that temptation is a temptation to prove one's worth. Temptation in this instance where the Spirit of God guides Jesus into the wild is a temptation that will allow him to show what is true about him. It is an opportunity, it is a place, it is a series of moments where Jesus will prove what God has said about him. He will be given a chance to show evidence that what God has said is true. 
Now, the second kind of temptation, and it's actually present in this passage too, is where the devil shows up. And the devil's intention for temptation is not to show Jesus' worth. It's not to expose how true God's words were according or, or for Jesus. Satan's goal and intention for tempting Jesus was to entice him to sin. That's the second definition. So on one hand, temptation is a kind of proving of one's worth. On the other hand, temptation is an enticement to sin. Now you will recognize this type of temptation if you've ever read the book of James. James, the uh, latter part of the New Testament in chapter 1. Verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now here James is a definition of temptation as the devil's intention here in Matthew 3 and Matthew 4. Because when he shows up, the devil tries to um, take the the, the, the opportunity that the Spirit of God gives Jesus to show his worth to entice Jesus to sin. So temptation from the place or the perspective of the Holy Spirit is an opportunity for Jesus to show his worth, to show evidence that what God said is real, and the devil, Satan, has another goal. I don't want to talk more about the devil. I want to talk about God this morning. uh, And I want to remind us that that God God has a a goal, if I can put it this way, to transform us. But transformation never comes through pronouncements alone. Here we have God the Father speaking and announcing and pronouncing that Jesus is his son, that he loves Jesus, and that Jesus pleases him. But Jesus doesn't live into that simply because God said it. The Spirit of God pulls Jesus into a context where he has to show that these things are true about him. Now, it's wonderful uh, that Jesus gets it right. Uh, You know, Jesus does it perfectly. Jesus responds to God's intention for this wilderness and even Satan's intention for this wilderness um, in ways that don't disprove what God says. I can't quite relate to Jesus in that way because when I get thrown into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, I don't do as well as Jesus does. And I think that's true for most of us who are breathing this morning. But, but the Spirit of God's intention for temptation is for us to show how true God's words are about us. So, so, so and I'll, I'll try to get to some specific applications in a few minutes. But one of the things I think we have to remember when we face times of the devil's testing or the Holy Spirit's testing is to recall what it is God has said to us, to others about us. 
Now, if we're not used to remembering the words of God for us, before we go into the desert, we won't be able to remember the words of God about us once we get there. If, if we are not able, disciplined, skilled in bringing to mind what God said about me before life gets hard, before life turns upside down, we will certainly not be able to hear the voice of God when the devil's voice is the only voice in our ears. The fact of the matter is we're in bad situations in our lives for one of two reasons. The first is because we made really stupid decisions. The second is the Holy Spirit led us there. Either way, you're in a mess. I screwed up. You sent me here. Now, I could park for a minute on why God would do something like that, like why that's sensible in God, which, which I can't really do justice to because in some kind of strange way, this is how God relates to God's self. In some kind of way, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son have figured out some way of relating to each other and inviting us into that relationship so that when God says something about God's self, it can be tested. And we're invited into God's life that way. That when God speaks something about you, when God says something about us, what God says is an invitation for the devil to give us an exam. So the first question for us to ponder is, what did God say to me before I got here? What were the words that the Spirit of God impressed upon me, that God gave me, that God gifted me? Because the words that God gave me are the only ways for me to be sustained in my future. I'm reading um, a memoir by Misty Copeland. And when I brought this home from the library and put it on my desk, my wife looked at me. And if you've ever seen Misty Copeland, you would understand why my wife would give me a look. But if you've ever seen my wife, you understand why Misty Copeland doesn't have a chance. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm reading Life in Motion, and, and in her memoir, Misty Copeland says that she found out early on that her life was meant to be lived on stage. She's a ballerina, uh, if you don't know who she is. Uh, she's other things, but she's a ballerina. And she says that she... She understood uh, in a very physical, memorable way that her life was meant to be on stage. 
And I think the same is true for Christians because, because in a sense, when we are baptized into the person of Christ, into the work of Christ, into the community of Christ, we are entering into a play, into a ballet, into a theater. We, we are stepping up on a stage, and the stage is, is called temptation. We, we, are, we are becoming a, a part of a cast of people who are saying to God and to God's enemies that there is something about me that is so true that it can be subject to testing. That, that the scenes around me and the props in my life can cause me to to, to to question what God said so that God can prove that God never speaks something that is a lie. In some ways, temptation is like a stage where we perform for an audience of one and in every movement and in every dance and in every gesture, we communicate, I heard what you said. I heard what you said. I heard what you said. We may falter. We may stumble. But our performance is for that, 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 that crazy spirit who does this to himself and to his community. When I think about Jesus' temptation, and then we'll go to Acts chapter 2, I'm thinking about uh, Jesus and his identity being formed by the word of God, by God saying, this is who Jesus is, this is my son. Jesus' identity being formed on the one hand, and him going into the wild, and his identity that is being formed is now an identity that is being deepened. I am my mother's son, and she will not deny that. But my mother, when I was a boy, used to say to me things like, when you go over there, don't you forget whose child you are. She would say things like, don't get over there and act a fool. She would say, don't make me come where you are. Because it was my mother's way of doing two things at the same time, saying, you're mine, and don't you forget it. Your mine is identity formation. Don't you forget it is deepening that identity in me. I will always be her son. Will I always know it in every circumstance, especially when it gets crazy? An identity that's formed can never be deep if it goes untested. So I got to be a little bit of a fool when I leave my mama. (laughs) 
but it never changes who I am. Acts chapter 2. So temptation is, a, is, a, is an immediate consequence of baptism. Here's, a, here's one uh, long-term consequence of baptism from Acts uh, chapter 2. Now, reread the verse. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What I want to talk about here is the word devotion. Say the word devotion. So temptation is an immediate consequence of baptism. Devotion is one of these long-term consequences. And by devotion, what I mean specifically is a change in devotion. Now I want to ask you to help me preach. Um, and this is one of these questions that are not rhetorical and are not meant for you just to consider quietly. I want to ask you uh, to answer this. What does devotion mean? Say it out loud. Use your preacher voice. Obedience. What does it mean? Devotion. Commitment. Dedication. Others. What? Discipline? Don't be scared. Say it. To give? Anybody else? What? Don't be scared. I can't hear out of my right ear. Uh, Oh, no, that's Peter. Actually, I can't hear. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, No, did you say faithfulness? Okay. Anybody else? Focus? Okay. Courage. Say it again. Acknowledgement. Investment. Hmm. Adoration. I know everybody's like, when will he hit a right answer so he can keep going? Or when will he hit an answer? Uh, Part of this mini sort of preaching exercise, your preaching, is, 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 is representing the diversity of what devotion can be. And one of the things that strikes me in uh, Luke's account in Acts is that Luke is telling a corporate history. He is telling a people's history. He is not talking about an individualized story. He is talking about the people of God and the kinds of instances, events, and acts that make up that early part of God's people's history. And so when he talks about devotion, when he talks uh, about this, this sort of um, um, the, 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 all of the people who accepting this message um, devoted themselves to these things, he is not just talking about an individual or even a collection of individuals. He is naming a kind of group culture, a corporate culture. 
and the devotion, uh, and he does use this word devotion. Of course, translations do different things with this word, but he's not just talking about agreement. He's not just talking about uh, intellectual assent. He's not just talking about uh, a cognitive kind of um, thing. He's not just even talking about particular acts or ethics. He's using a word that makes us think of love. Now, now consider the word love. The last time you talked about your faith, how many times you used the word love. When you talk about Jesus Christ, how many times you use words like devotion? Luke does talk here about awe talks about uh, adoration, talks about something that, that covers your head but goes deeper down into your bowels, into all of you, goes down from your middle to your feet, a kind of, a kind of word that makes us think it is both heady and everything else. When he talks about this, this post-baptismal life, he says that God's people are in awe. That God's people are struck. And he doesn't talk about it in an immediate, instantaneous way. He then goes on to break his definition down to specific ways of being. So he talks about, he talks about being in awe in a kind of long-term way. Now, now let me ask you, uh, I should put it this way. How many of you have ever been in love? Raise your hand. And if you're with the person you're supposed to be in love with, they won't know you're talking about them or not. So uh, just raise your hand. Now, you will remember, and for some of you, you have to remember. For some of you, you're experiencing this right now. Um, you, know, you, will, you will remember um, what you mean by being in love. You will remember that being in love had these physical connotations. They had these mental connotations. That they, they, they affected your behavior, these experiences of love, whatever you mean by it. And the same is true for the church here. When, when, when Luke talks about God's people after baptism, he's saying that this people had a love that is different now than before. He's saying that what they centered themselves upon, what they, what they thought about, what they felt about, how they were moved by certain things, changed after their baptism. And it wasn't just an individual thing, but their, their changes in devotion, their changes in appetite, their changes in interest, their changes in how they lived happened over the course of time. When I, when I prepare to preach, I think about where my life has been in the week or two before, and it tends to come out um, in sermons sometimes. And one of the things I was thinking about um, this week was 
how a, how a hero of mine died on Easter Sunday, went to heaven on Easter Sunday. And when, when Reverend Taylor uh, died, and I think it was quite poetic that he died on Easter, given how he, how he spent his life, when he died, Dawn asked me if I was going to go uh, to, or she said, do you want to go to his funeral? And I told her that I wanted to go, um, that I don't think I have to go, but that, that it's something that I would want to do. And when I called Mrs. Taylor, um, you know, she said the day or so after, she said that the funeral would be on Monday and there in New York. Um, and I was supposed to be on call until Monday morning and it got really complicated. And I, and I, and, uh, I asked a friend who lives in New York to to attend this service. Now, this friend who is a pastor, you know, doesn't do pastoral things on Mondays. And I said, when I was asking this question, you know, will you, will you do this for me? And I, I know it causes problems with your schedule. And he said, I will change my schedule to do this for you. And in a way... I thought about how, for me, that was an instance of devotion. It was him who has a way of being and a way of life, being willing to not do away with that, but to express his love for me, even though he had to change something. He... Um, did me this favor uh, because he was devoted. And, and the church here in Acts takes on these kinds of things, these kinds of actions, these kinds of behaviors where they are starting because they have heard the gospel, because they have been baptized, to become a people they would not ordinarily be. They start to do things that uh, they would not ordinarily do because of Christ, because of their public expression of Christ, because of their giving allegiance to Christ uh, in their totality. They want to identify with this person, with this people so much that they change, even when it has to do with changing their loves. So, Three applications, and then uh, I'm done. The first one is um, for us to become students of our temptation. If temptation is an opportunity for the Spirit of God to prove something about us, we need to know the end of this temptation. And part of how we learn the end of the temptation is going back to the beginning, and that is what God said. So, so how am I hearing the word of God? What is God saying about me? And what do I need to learn in the wild? Now, this sounds pretty academic. It gets really practical. Uh, and I'll, this is not confession, so I will not confess. But if you want me to confess, I'll do that privately. But I will use this as an example. There, there are certain people 
in the world who, when I see them coming, uh, I clash with. And I know this person. Like, I can tell you all about them. And, and, and part of my temptation is when I see him or her coming, uh, for me to recognize God has uh, this person coming in my life so that I can look at them and, 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 and figure out what it is I'm so moved by. And I don't mean moved in a good way. I mean moved in a bad way. And, and I have to be a student of my temptation to know either this is going to go here or this is going to go there. And I will always run into this person. This person will always be in my life in one form or another until I get over the temptation and prove that what God said about me has always been true. I still think I am not who God said. So when they show up and they actually echo these lies that the enemy promotes, I go right into it and get right on the stage and perform. Now, I'm learning because I know who the person is. I just, I, I just am not the best student yet of knowing how, how to hear God's voice in that wilderness. So the first is for us to become students, for us to ask the questions like, what is it that God has said about me? What is it that I've often heard God speaking about me? And even though the circumstances of my life have changed, this continues to stay. Every time God runs his mouth, he says this about me. How can I pay attention to that? Who can I tell this to so that they can share this with me when I get into the mess? The second thing I think we can do is uh, become involved in increasingly deep friendships. Jesus is not doing this. Uh, but the church in Acts is doing this here in the passage, where the church is gathering together and developing friendships. And I like the language of friendships. You may use the word community. I, I, you know, maybe it's the same relationship, whatever. Maybe it's the same. Um, but getting involved in increasingly powerful friendships is one application for dealing with our temptations and for changing our devotion. The, the, the beautiful thing that is not true about Jesus, that is true about us, is Jesus faced his temptations alone. We don't. We never go into the wild, even when God sends us there by ourselves. I suppose you could, if you get me into a sort of Trinitarian corner, I would say that Jesus wasn't even there by himself. So, you know, I mean, I guess that's fine. <laughs> but, 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 but the life that Jesus lives is never the life that we're to live. We cannot live his life. That's the beauty of it. We try to live his life. We try to go into the wilderness like our names is Jesus. 
We try to do what only Jesus can do. But the truth is, the church's testimony is, we never have to face our times of testing and examination alone. We never have to face our tests and exams alone. Now, you may well try, and you can do that with your fool self. And you already know how it's going to end because your name is not Jesus. If anything, that just leaves you more and more confused about what God said because nobody's really telling you what God says and you think you already know what God says. So you don't, you don't have a, vector, a, a mechanism or a vessel for that continued progressive revelation where God says the same thing but in a way today that you could hear that you couldn't hear three years ago. You still haven't heard it, so today I'll tell it to you this way. How does that come to you when you're the only person you were Three years ago, it comes by relating to a Carlton or a Nate or a Blessing or an Ariel and them coming along, Wendy coming along and May coming along and saying, you haven't gotten it. Let me tell it to you this way. And that's true friendship. Like we can say relationship, but we won't listen to each other. I'm in a relationship. You know, you know. You just call me your friend because you're not going to like me when I tell you what God says to you. And you can choose to not be my friend. If you're sitting next to somebody, ask them, say, will you be my friend? Come, no, do it, people, do it, do it. I know this kind of sounds like Mr. Rogers. You're rebellious people. You didn't even, none of you to laugh, and you still haven't asked them. So, they, uh. this, is, this is where, this gets me in trouble in my house because, you know, I don't use the same kind of words Pastor Peter would use, you know. So sometimes he says this stuff in the church, and he talks about best friend, his wife is his best friend. And, and I tell my wife, I say, don't, don't you expect me to say that. <laughs> My last name ain't home. No, I, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. And here's the thing. I'm glad you laughed. She wouldn't laugh. She would, you know. Uh, we are not in a violent relationship. But, you know, sometimes when I say stuff, you wouldn't necessarily know it the way she looks at me. You crazy. Um, but I always, and she doesn't necessarily hear it because I, I don't do the timing right. But I always say to her, well, you know, as my wife, you're more than a friend. Like, you have a whole different, you know, relationship. So for me to downgrade you, you know, and to call you a friend, you know, I still do all these gymnastics. So I just don't say. <laughs> Trying to recover, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it's too late. It's too late. But when I asked you, and you didn't do this, you disobedient, rebellious people, when I asked you to ask your neighbor to be your friend, what you were asking them, if you did and you didn't and you still can, you were asking them to be a part of God's life for you. You were asking them to be a part 
of not just the forming where I get to say I'm a part of new community, but the deepening where you go through the temptation together. Where you don't just show up and say, oh yeah, that's, those are my people. But you let those people tell you when you're doing a grand job at living for Christ and when you're still not praying, when you're still not submitted to the apostles' teaching, when you're still not breaking bread. Those friends, and again, you can say community, you can say what you want, but those folks become the means that God uses to pull you deeper. Finally, uh, what's the first thing I said? Um, Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Become a student of your temptation. Be a part of increasingly deep friendships. Be willing to fall. I don't like that. Be willing to choose a different love. You chose to be baptized. And you also choose to live the baptized life. And in a sense, loving Jesus is a choice. It is a series of choices. It is a daily choice. It is a long-term life choice that you make or that you don't make. So, 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 you know, we used to, when I was growing up, we used to ask people, you know, do you want to follow Jesus? And it was sort of this, do you want to get saved? There was this sort of one-time thing that we focused on. And in a sense, we have to keep calling each other to this same decision, this same choice to keep loving, to keep changing our devotions. Because we get attracted to all kind of things. We are pulled in all kinds of directions. And, I mean, you know, your stage is different from mine. You know, your, your, your temptation and your field of wilderness is not like mine. Some of the stuff you like would never move me. Some of the stuff I'm lured into would leave you with your mouth dropped, right? I mean, that's the, that's the complexity of what God has to do when God guides us in the wilderness. And when God sustains us in the wilderness, God has to figure all that out because you're unique. But you and I have to be willing to continually choose to love Jesus more. I want you. I want that too, but I I want you. In fact, uh, can you do something about my desire for that because it's getting in the way of my love for you? I don't even feel right about telling you how much better that looks to me than you. I am awestruck by this, that, and the other, and yet I want to be devoted to you. Then comes the Holy Spirit's job, which is to convince us that what God said is true. Carlton, you better come because I've been talking just a little too long. So, 
for about 30 seconds, just here with nothing else being said, no keys, and then we'll move from there. What else God wants to say to you? I think we've sang this a couple of years ago, and I always started wrong. I'm going to act like I'm going to listen to the key Carlton plays, and I'll probably mess up. But I want us to sing this very simple melody. It's something we can take into our temptations. Till those times of trial and testing. It's a simple, it's a psalm. It's be still and know that I am God. And any other words you can use, but say that. Say, be still and know that I am God. the melody, let's sing it. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that Yeah. 